there's a certain amount of overwhelm and exhaustion and a feeling of helplessness around what does the future hold as people witness the crashing down of the old systems that were built on more linear times, less complex times, but now with complexity and and just the whole future of the world in our hands, it calls for a deeper level of self-management, self-awareness, and capacity to regulate ourselves and our, our responses to these things emotionally, physically, spiritually, and intellectually, of course, on all levels. So today we're talking about how can we do that? How can we access the technology we have within us? It's not on our devices. Our devices certainly won't help us when the world crashes down around. So this is really about trusting from the inside as opposed to relying on outside saviors like government or, or business or industry or whatever it happens to be in your mind. This is very much around creating the world we want to be. So today we're talking about how to work with how to access those deeper parts of you that give you resilience that allow you to transcend and rise above what what doesn't make sense in this world. My name is Donna Jones. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My work is very much around raising self and organizational awareness so that business can create and regenerate back to society and so that you have a sense of calm and peace around what you're experiencing in the world as it emerges. My guest today is someone who has pushed the limits of human performance to achieve a flow state, that state where you are on the edge, it's high risk, it's high stakes, and you feel your best, you feel your optimal best. Uh, Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author of The Rise of Superman and, and other books as well. He's also written for a lot of publications, including New York Times, Wired, Forbes, Discover, G, G, uh, GQ, that's fun, and National Geographic. Uh, he's also the founder, co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project, and the name alone is, I find, incredibly intriguing. It's an organization dedicated to decoding the ultimate human performance. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And I, I'm interested in talking about what you've been up to, in large part because from an executive level, there's never been a bigger time to think like an athlete and to be like an athlete and to function like an athlete. And I want to talk about all, the whole interview about flow, but I think we need to look back because you've been doing this work for a while. We need to look back on you know, how well has business taken these ideas the capacity to, to connect the dots, to see things you wouldn't normally see. How well has is, is business integrated and applied the knowledge behind flow states to, to get productivity and innovation ramped up? Have you, can you share successes or near successes or, yeah. or uh, epic fails? So, you know, the truth of the matter is the, the integration has kind of come in waves, right? So flow science, uh, the science kind of optimal performance, it dates back in, in its modern incarnation, meaning like we started actually doing real research and such, to about the 1870s. The first 120 years or so of it focused on the psychology. And most famously, that's, that's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work, his best-selling book, Flow, and follow-ups by Keith Sawyer, who wrote Group Genius. And, and a lot of these ideas, Csikszentmihalyi's ideas around flow, have been integrated. Um, in business. So you have companies as wide-ranging as Microsoft, Patagonia, uh, Green Cargo, the list kind of goes on and on, that have incorporated flow 
into their corporate methodology, kind of put a lot of companies have put it almost at the center of their corporate methodology, and to great result. We know, for example, McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives, and they found that top executives in flow are five times more productive than their steady-state peers. So that's an astounding figure. That's 500% more productive, right? That means you go to work on Monday, spend Monday in flow, and can take Tuesday through Friday off done and get as much done as everybody else. It's a really big boost. Since the 1990s or so, we have made enormous progress in neuroscience. And this has allowed us to look a lot deeper under the hood and figure out what's causing flow in the brain, what's the neurobiology underpinning it, what's the mechanism underpinning it. And this has given us a tremendous amount of kind of new insight in how to produce these states and how to use these states, things along those lines. These ideas are just now starting to trickle into business, which is not to say there isn't stuff out there. If you look at any major kind of no, name corporation these days, and I'm thinking of, of the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, if you look under the hood at kind of their human development practices, I've been saying for a while now that the coolest revolution in Silicon Valley isn't in technology, it's in people management. And a lot of that stuff, whether or not people are conscious of it, is actually about how do they drive employees into flow, right? Because it's optimal performance and everybody's trying to optimize performance of flow. You know, it's interesting because people have gotten pretty good at some of these techniques. Flow provides kind of a macroscopic framework for, for some of the stuff that's already been going on. And at the cutting edge level, businesses just now are starting to integrate some of these ideas. Interesting. Now, I, I think that neuroscience always provides a lot more rational logic to the experience than could ever be de- you know, described psychologically. What has th- that added to the whole mix of things for executives? Well, so let's just talk about one thing we've learned about flow, which is used to be, for a very, very long time, people assumed flow was binary. It was like a light switch, right? You were either in the zone or you were out of the zone. Turns out, we now know that flow is a four-stage cycle, and we know a couple of things. First of all, on the front end, we know that not all of these stages are flowy. In fact, the, the entrance stage into flow was named struggle by Herbert Benson, the Harvard cardiologist who actually kind of mapped the, the neurochemistry of the flow cycle. And it was named struggle for a reason, right? It's a very, very difficult, unpleasant, it's kind of the exact opposite experience of flow. We've, then there's a, a release phase, the flow state itself, and on the back end, recovery. And recovery is what I want to talk about. One of the things that we know about flow at this point is it requires a very, very potent neurochemical cocktail. Five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce show up at flow. And flow is the only time it appears that the brain produces all five of these simultaneously. All of these are expensive for the brain to produce, and they require calories and vitamins and minerals, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which means that when you come out of the flow state, the, right, the third stage in the cycle, into the recovery stage, there's, not, there's a First of all, a very considerable drop in mood. You go from this incredible high of, I feel like Superman, to this very deep, deep, dark low. That low is kind of is a signal that you're in the recovery phase and you actually need to take time off. You need to rest. You need to recuperate. Where that doesn't show up in business is everywhere. For example, I talk to a lot of top sales guys, people who work in really high-pressure sales jobs, whether it's real estate or cars or or whatever, stocks, bonds, whatever, lots and lots of pressure. And invariably, I hear the same story over and over, which is I had this amazing quarter. I got into flow all the time. 
I beat my quotas by like 300%. And as soon as it was over, first thing that happened was my boss said, that, great, that's fantastic. We're going to cut your territory in half and we're going to double your quotas for next period. And there's no recovery period, which means the body cannot begin to reproduce what it needs to get back into flow again, which is exactly what somebody would need to perform at this ridiculously high level that the bar has now been set at. And we don't do that. Oftentimes in business, the reward for getting into flow states and doing a great job of something is immediately more responsibility, less time to do it in. And essentially businesses are creating the very conditions that will lock employees out of flow, which is the very thing they need to, to meet these advanced expectations. Excellent distinction. I really appreciate that because it ties it directly back to decision making when you you know when you come out of that stage, if you're self-aware about the factor in recovery, then you, you can self-manage much more effectively. I'll tell you, I'll give you, I'll give you a funny, I'll take it one beat further. So in The Rise of Superman, as you pointed out at the beginning, I focus on today's action and adventure sport athletes, the extreme athletes. And one of the reasons I focus on them is using flow. These people, they become sort of the best practitioners of flow out there for a variety of reasons. They've produced in the past 25 years nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance. So performance in life or limb is on the line, right? Nothing like this has ever happened before. And sports performance is slow, it's steady, it's governed by the laws of evolution. It doesn't quintuple in a decade, but this is what's happening in every single action sport. Like across the board, we're seeing growth like we've never seen before. Let me give you one quick example so you can wrap your head around what I'm talking about. Surfing is a thousand-year-old sport. From 400 AD to 1996, the biggest wave anybody had ever surfed was 25 feet. And above that, everybody, scientists, surfers, whatnot, believed it was actually physically impossible to defy the laws of physics impossible. But today, surfers are pushing into waves that are over 100 feet tall. So this is the level of, of kind of growth I'm talking about and how rapid it is. And one of the fundamental reasons, and it sounds so odd, but all of these sports are exceptionally weather-dependent. Big storms blow in, and everybody goes surfing or everybody goes skiing or snowboarding or whatever, and then they pass. And there's a built-in recovery period afterwards. It's just part of the natural cycle of weather. So they're always sort of honoring their recovery period. It was just built into what they did, but it made a huge, huge, huge difference. So, And we don't see built-in recovery periods anywhere in business, really. Um, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, I can think of, I think can think of, you know, no, very few American, you know, Europeans that got different ideas about vacation and time off and things like that. We don't have those ideas here. We work and work and work and work. And, um, and it's a problem because it's actually hindering our performance. Well, I think it just ties back to companies that have worked in mindfulness and some meditative, you know, quiet space uh, outside. Of, because normally the pattern is be busy, be busy, be busy, be busy. Don't reflect, don't stand back, don't look at what, what you're busy at doing. So the recovery phase can can take a number of different forms besides vacation, I would think. It could also just include that, that you know, the practice of mindfulness. I don't know if that's relevant or not. Where it's relevant, one of the things all this neuroscience has taught us the flow states have triggers, right? These are preconditions that lead to more flow. So there are environmental triggers and psychological triggers and creative triggers and social triggers. But the point here is that all of these triggers follow focus. Flow can only take place in the present tense. Totally an experience that happens in the now, right? So all of these flow triggers are basically the ways evolution shaped our brain to pay attention to the present moment. Mindfulness training 
is a way that we can also train the brain to pay attention to the present moment. So mindfulness training, focus training of any kind, right? Um, and we, you know, we we like what the we, we we kind of fall in line at the Flow Genome Project. We follow we like what the Navy SEALs have done with box breathing. It's a it's a very effective, you know, not only is it a mindfulness technique, but it kind of slows down the fight or flight response, which is also a big deal for flow. It it, it calms the nervous system down a little bit, um, which makes it easier to enter flow. But for sure, uh, mindfulness training is starting to you know sweep into business, and one of the results even though people aren't looking at it right now, is going to be more flow because they're training up focus, and it's fantastic. Explain for our listeners who, who aren't familiar with uh, box breathing what that means. Box breathing is a really simple breathing technique where you build a box with your breath. So one side of the box is your inhale, and you do it for three seconds. Then you hold breath for three, three seconds. That's the next side of the box. Then you exhale for three seconds. And with all the air out of your lungs, you then hold for another three seconds, and you repeat, and you build up four seconds or five seconds. The goal, one of the goals, is six seconds aside. Why that is is interesting. When you're breathe, first of all, when you exhale all your air out and you hold that side of the box, the body has an innate panic response. When you have no air in your lungs, your body wants to panic. So one of the things that you're training by, by, by doing that is quelling the panic response, which is to say you're lowering the amount of cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine in the bloodstream. The second thing that's important is the brain, when you're breathing in six seconds and out for six seconds, that is long enough for the brain to go, hey, wait a minute, your breathing is really calm and steady. There's no possible way you could be panicking right now on any level. Right? You shouldn't be feeling anxious because you're breathing like somebody who's very, very relaxed and there's no threat in the environment. So, again, it dampens down the amygdala response, the, the, the kind of the panic, fight, or flight response, also with, with tremendous benefit for flow. I just want to extend a little bit because, obviously, there's been success, successes in applying flow to executive performance, but in keeping with flow, the next level up would be now what? What's the next level for business executives and leaders? So, let's, so the, what I like to talk about, and we could argue about these, but I don't think anybody's going to totally disagree. I, I would argue that the three most quali- important qualities, and I'll explain why I feel this way, in business today are creativity, motivation, and learning. So let's, let's, let's start with actually motivation. Right now, we know, recent Gallup survey, 71% of American workers are disengaged on the job, meaning three out of four of us hate what we do with the majority of our time, right? It is a crisis of commerce to say the absolute least. Other people have jobs that produce flow. How do we know this? Because flow, so I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, let me explain the science a little bit, and then we'll kind of come back to what it means. I said earlier that flow cocktails five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce. Now, these are all performance-enhancing chemicals on a lot of levels. They jack up mental processing and physical processing and all the rest, but they're also reward chemicals. In fact, they're the five most potent reward drugs the brain can produce, which means flow is just about the most addictive state on Earth, right? Psychologists don't like the word addictive. It's got negative connotations, so instead they use autotelic. When something is autotelic, it is an end in itself, which means we will do it for the sheer sake of doing it. And we've all seen this at work in business. When decoders stay up, you know, five days straight on, you know, cold pizza and warm soda, 
to finish the software design to flow that's keeping them going. Activity is intrinsically rewarding. In fact, psychologists now believe flow is so intrinsically rewarding that it's referred to as the source code of intrinsic motivation. So flow massively amplifies motivation on the front end, right? Big, big important deal. Creativity is what we should talk about next. Creativity, according to pretty much anybody you talk to, is now considered the most important quality in an executive today. IBM, for example, did a global survey. They surveyed 1,500 corporate leaders in something like 60 countries. And across the board, the number one answer of quality is most desirable in a CEO was creativity. Same thing, by the way, if you talk to people about how do we change the education system for tomorrow, we have to make our, train our kids up in creativity. The problem here is we don't really know how to teach people to be more creative. It's a problem. We're not very good at it. There are some techniques out there that aren't bad, but as a general, we aren't very good at it. Flow, as it turns out, automatically enhances creativity. And this is a little complicated, but here's what we know. Creativity is thought to be now, we used to think it was you know, ideas popping out of nowhere. Now we believe it's always recombinatory. It's what happens when we take in more novel information, we combine it better with old ideas. So there's pattern recognition, right? There's information gathering, then there's pattern recognition. This is how we create new ideas. This is how we innovate. This is the standard process for creativity in the brain. So if you want to amplify creativity, first thing you want to do is gather more novel information. Well, there you're in luck because two of the chemicals that show up and flow are norepinephrine and dopamine. These are focusing chemicals. They tighten focus. They make your senses peak. Your senses gather more data per second when these things are kind of pulsing through your body. More importantly, both of these chemicals do something else. They tune signal-to-noise ratios, which is a fancy way of saying they enhance pattern recognition, your ability to link ideas together. Then you have anandamide, which is another chemical that shows up in flow. This enhances your ability to think laterally or to link disparate ideas together. So the neurobiology of flow, and the, the, there's, there's more to it than just neurochemistry. I'm leaving out neuroelectrical stuff and neuroanatomical stuff, but just for brevity's sake. But these chemicals alone surround the creative process, right? They amplify all aspects of it, which is why, for example, in studies we've run out of the Flow Genome Project, people report 500 to 700% amplification of creativity and flow, or he put that in a different terms. This really cool recent Australian study, they took 42 people, they all gave them an impossibly tricky brain teaser to solve, so that requires really creative problem-solving skills. Nobody could solve it. They induced flow artificially, and I can talk about how later if you're curious. They induced flow artificially, and 23 people solved the problem in record time. That's how much it amplifies creativity. Finally, learning. And Learning, I always kind of, I don't know, are you familiar with the work of Ari Deguse? Yes, of course. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. right. So Shell, former head of innovation at, at Royal Dutch Shell, got curious about sort of the big, long version of Jim Collins' good to great study, right? Collins wanted to know what does it take to outperform the S&P 500 for 15 years, right? And what, what, what's in the company's DNA? Ari Deguse said, oh, that's interesting, but Shell's been around a lot longer. I want to know about, you know, what's in the DNA of the longest-lived country, companies in history, right? And he studied, I think it was 40 of them, but he drilled down into 27 of them. And some of them have been around for almost a 1,000 years. And after kind of crunching the data and looking at these questions for years and years and years, he came to one conclusion. The only sustainable competitive advantage is the ability to learn faster than your competitors. Interestingly, in flow, a shorthand for learning 
is the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, the more chance that experience has of moving from short-term holding into long-term storage. One of the other functions of neurochemicals is to tag experience with big neon signs that say, important, save for later, which is why in studies, for example, run by the U.S. military DARPA studies with a, comp uh, a research team at Advanced Brain Monitoring in Carlsbad, California, they found that snipers in flow learn 230 to 500% faster than normal, right? So Malcolm Gladwell's fabled 10,000 hours to mastery, what the research shows is that flow can cut them in half. So earlier, we talked about a 500% boost in productivity, right? The McKinsey study, when you look under the hood of that, right? When you ask me to drill down a level, what do we see next? We see massively amplified learning, motivation, and creativity. And as important as these things were in years prior, as you pointed out, we live in a massively complicated, unpredictable environment where we're surrounded by exponentially accelerating technology and all of its ramifications. You really need flow process at this level to work at this speed. It's the only way to kind of keep up with the speed of business today. I want to pick up on something you said about creativity because one of the, the uh, thought dynamics or the thinking dynamics that companies and, and executives follow is that creativity equals uncertainty. That whole creative process is messy. There's nothing predictable in it. It's uncertain. So the first thing you do is take something that's uncertain and you make it certain in order to proceed. That obviously is one way that companies are blocking flow, correct? No, actually, well, yes, yes, for sure. So when we talk about flow triggers, right, I said there were environmental triggers. One of the environmental triggers is what we call a rich environment, which is a fancy way of saying lots of novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in the environment, right? Why do you want these things? You want these things because when the brain encounters something novel, something unpredictable, something complex, it releases large quantities of dopamine. And, we've, and it triggers flow. And we've all, by the way, had this experience at least a little bit if you've ever felt awe, right? You stare at the Grand Canyon and you're overwhelmed by the sense of geological time and you look up at the sky and you're overwhelmed by the amount of you know, galaxies you're looking at in the stars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're overwhelmed by complexity. And we feel, oh, what happens? Time seems to slow down. We get sucked into the moment. We get pulled into the front edge of a flow state. So we've all had this experience. And to bring it back, let me just give you two examples. In action and adventure sports, one of the other reasons that you see nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance, one of the reasons they've gotten so good at hacking flow is they have their environment, the environment that they perform and that they work in, is a rich environment, packed with novelty, complexity, and unpredictability. No two waves are the same for a surfer. The Alaskan snowpack morphs on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. These are living systems. They change all the time, right? When companies have problems, you know, here, the classic, the great example here is Pixar. Steve Jobs wanted to increase the amount of creativity, the amount of flow at Pixar, and he had a problem, which was there wasn't enough complexity, meaning the various teams weren't talking to one each other. If you were in marketing or advertising, you weren't talking to the guys in animation. You weren't talking to the cinematographers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what did he do? When he built the new Pixar offices, he famously built a giant atrium in the center of the building, and next to the atrium, he put the cafeteria, the meeting rooms, the mailboxes, and most nefariously, the only restrooms in the building. You had to go to the atrium 
bump into other people from other teams, have random conversations, increase the amount of unpredictability, and the result was Pixar, right? Massive Academy Awards for their creativity, which was, you know, augmented, of course, by the flow states that they got into because of this upped amount of complexity and unpredictability. But you're right. The standard strategy of trying to kind of minimize complexity in that way doesn't work. And instead, by the way, where does it work? What's, who's doing stuff right? One example is Google, right? With, when they go after a moonshot, right, they want 10x improvement. And one of the reasons they want 10x improvement, and Astor Teller is great talking about this, and he actually talks about this a lot in my book called Bold, which is sort of the follow-up to Abundance, the book I wrote with Peter Diamandis. And, and we spend a lot of time kind of focusing on how Google innovates. And, you know, one part of it is they go after 10x thinking. You cannot solve, you cannot improve something 10 times, right, a 1,000% increase in performance with the old methods. You have to throw out all the old assumptions, all the old ideas. You have to massive, you have to begin not by trying to make, you know, the unpredictable and, you know, predictable, but going in the exact opposite direction by massively kind of accepting and embracing the complexity and going from there. Is there a key to this code that business, you know, if you were to turn around and hand it to someone Monday morning or, or to an executive you're speaking with, is there a key to a code that they could use to guide their company or their company's culture? Well, yeah, okay, so let me, be, let me back into that question and, and sort of start someplace else, which is this is not self-help. What I mean by that is twofold. On the front end, Self-help is about 5% gains, 10% gains. It's very slow, gradual improvement, right, over time. We are talking about paradigm shifts, 500% more productivity, 700% more creativity, you know, learning amped up by 200, 500%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the jump is much, much bigger. That said, as a result, two things are true. One, there is no magic pill, and I'll come back to that in half a second. Two, there's a considerable dark side to flow. And we are very, at the Flow Genome Project, we are very forthcoming. We talk a lot about this. You're playing with very fundamentally addictive neurochemicals, very basic neuronal processes. There is an upside and there is a downside. It can be dangerous. There are risks involved. And, you know, not for everybody, perhaps. That said, flow is ubiquitous, right? We are all hardwired for this experience, so anybody can access it, but you need to know what you're doing. So back to there is no magic pill. There is no magic pill, but, you know, at the Flow Genome Project, we do trainings all the time. Some of them are two-day, come in and, you know, train up a company. Some of them are six-week, eight weeks, you know, train up, train up companies. But the information is out there. It's really about understanding, you know, what flow is, how it really works in the body and the brain, right, and getting comfortable with it, you know, that way. And then it's understanding very, very deeply the flow triggers, the flow cycle and a handful of other things, but you can you can see massive improvements very very quickly. And I'll just give you an example. This is this is not hard and fast data, but you know, in just going over our more recent classes of the Flow Genome Project, people on the back end are reporting, and this is after you know, these are just our online classes where we do six weeks, you know, once a week, ninety minutes with myself and, and Jamie Wheel, the other principal, and a lot of homework. People are seeing confidence jumping 500%. They're seeing their access to flow jumping roughly 500% as well. And they're seeing creativity jumping about 500% afterwards. So it is absolutely trainable. 
You know, these are learned skills. Everybody's hardwired for it. They're different people get into flow states differently. Kind of, you, you, you know, there's information here you need to get, but it's accessible, it's available, and it can, you know, make a significant difference. Okay, so that, that basically, that explanation sounds like what you were alluding to earlier as a way of inducing a flow state. It's to really become more aware of what makes it and to know when you're accessing. There's a lot of self-awareness involved. There's a massive amount of self-awareness around, and I'll give you, let me give you just one example, because I always talk about this, right? In the recovery phase, because we talked about that earlier, you go from feeling like Superman to feeling very, very depressed. And one of the things that blocks people in the flow cycle, this has two sets of ramifications. If you cannot learn to kind of the emotional fortitude, the grit you need to push through that, you have a number of problems. One, as the body starts to produce cortisol levels and you know increase cortisol in relationship to stress, little cortisol is helpful. A lot of cortisol blocks learning. So that accelerated learning we talked about in flow won't get it because being stressed out at the end in the recovery phase, not having the emotional fortitude to handle it, you'll start producing too many stress hormones, you'll block the learning. Worse, you have to move from recovery into struggle. Struggle is a loading phase. You are loading and overloading the brain with information. So this is a training phase. If you're a baseball player, you're learning how to keep your eye on the ball and swing the bat, right? For a writer, this is when I'm outlining my book and I've got vector diagrams all over my office about this chapter goes to this chapter goes to this chapter and this idea and blah, 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 right? It's unpleasant. It's hard. It's difficult. It's exceptionally frustrating. And if you're depressed coming out of recovery because you're not feeling like Superman anymore, it's very difficult to move quickly into the really significant challenge of struggle. So you get stuck kind of wallowing in depression, and it can be very significant. And what I mean by that earlier, we talked about flow being dangerous. Artists who rely on flow, right? Creativity is a process that's driven by flow. In fact, the thing that people find most enjoyable in flow is actually the creativity that comes with it. You can get locked out of that creative cycle, right? You can go through a big creative period, lots of flow, and then you come down, and it's a harsh down, which is why I believe you have such a high rate of suicide among creatives. They don't know what they're playing with. They do this instinctively. It's part of the body's hardwiring. And if you don't know what you're doing and suddenly this magic state goes away, it can be very, very, very painful. It can be very depressing. So you have to, the emotional fortitude you spoke about, you really need it to be able to move smoothly through the flow cycle, and you need to move smoothly through the flow cycle to maximize the amount of flow in your life, right? You, it's four-stage process. You've got to go through all the stages. There's different neurobiology underneath each stage. You can't skip a stage. You know, this is, this is just biology. There's nothing you can do about it. You, you have to go through all four of them, and you will get blocked if you can't, you know, hold your mud. Yeah, I can totally see where understanding the biology would uh, make a big, it, it's an added part of the skill set, because when you understand the biology, then you can self-observe and, and notice exactly where you are in the process and manage yourself accordingly. Yeah, and I mean, we take it farther, you know, we train people to sort of recognize their own neurochemistry. We talk about these neurochemicals, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, blah, 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 and they're just words to most people. They, they, they kind of point at the moon, but they don't. you can figure out, you can start to detect what's going on in your body at really, you know, at really deep levels, and it's not very hard to do. I mean, it's, it's really just a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more awareness, 
but it gives you such powerful tools for kind of hacking ultimate human performance. You know, I can't help but notice that novelty, unpredictability, and complexity, those plus uncertainty, those elements uh, as part of a rich environment are exactly the same elements that exist in a gaming environment and, and why games, you know, really take people to different levels of performance that they can't normally exercise in reality because reality's got a whole other set of parameters to it. Well, you, I mean, it goes even farther than that. So games are phenomenal high-flow environment, and building video games are also, you know, coders in flow built the Internet uh, and the video game industry, and, you know, video, video, there's tremendous amounts of data. There's literature going back 15 years talking about flow in video games. In fact, they now know that the amount of flow a video game produces directly correlates to how well it sells. So they can use flow as an indicator of market performance. You can also, by the way, flow in Internet design and website design is a way of websites that can produce flow. They have high degree of stickiness and slipperness. Stickiness is, oh, this catches my attention. It holds me. Slipperiness is your ability to kind of move, follow information from one experience to the other and move in and out of the online to the real world and back and forth fundamental components of internet design and they're all triggered by flow states. Where can people go for more information? StephenKotler.com is me, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. If you want more general flow information, you can go to StephenKotler.com or you can go to the flowgenomeproject.co.co. And if you go to the uh, FGP.co, what you're going to, one of the things you'll find there, which is a great place to start, and it's free, is a flow diagnostic. As I mentioned earlier, different people get into flow states radically different ways. And I mean radically different ways. Altruism is a flow state trigger. Bring on a flow state we know as helper's high. Creativity flow state trigger. You know, high risk experience. It goes on and on across the boards. And people like getting in different ways, right? Of these 12 flow triggers, some people prefer different ones. This diagnostic will give you a sense of which activities are going to produce the most flow in your life. And the one thing I want to say, since this is, this is a business podcast, is oftentimes one of the things I hear, especially in and around the flow diagnostic, is, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, I, have a, I have a job that pays me really, really well, but I don't like it, and I've got a mortgage, I've got a wife, I can't. Like, what do I do? I, you know, it doesn't produce enough flow, and I want more. And one of the things I always tell people to do is find a hobby. Take the flow diagnostic, figure out which directions your inclinations lie, and then find a hobby in that zone that will produce lots of flow. What happens, a couple things happen. First of all, you're, this is just, we're, we have plastic brains, right? Neuroplastic brains. So you, but you can train the brain up in flow. So the, I'm a big skier. I get into flow all the time when I ski. This also helps me get into flow when I write. It also helps me get into flow when I run my business. There's crossover because you're training the brain up in a skill. There's also what we call kind of the high perch experience. There's an emergent property to flow. You get a vista view of your life that's bigger and larger. It's a kind of, well, if, if this is what's actually possible for myself in this state, imagine what might be possible. I can achieve more of the state over time kind of view of your life. And what ends up happening is people in dead-end jobs start seeing how those dead-end jobs might blend with their new hobby or go off in different directions. And invariably, and I don't have data to back this up other than, you know, anecdotal stories that we hear over and over and over at the Flow Genome Project, when people start down this path, just the act of producing more flow in their life, and it could be from something like they learn to, you know, spin pots on a wheel. 
and you know the rest of the time they're a stockbroker. But the more flow they show up in their life, the more interesting places their lives lead, which is why Me High discovered back you know, in the 1980s, people with the most flow in their lives tend to score off the charts for life satisfaction and quality of life. Stephen, thanks very much for being on the program. Lots of great information here, and I really appreciate the suggestion that people go to the Flow Genome Project and uh, take that diagnostic so, so that you can use this and put this into play because the awareness doesn't do much unless you actually use it. So best to find out what, what, what surfaces for you, and then you will know you've got a tool then to work with to better balance your life and, and achieve states of flow in a more conscious way, in a way in which you know how to do it again. And so when you're in a business state, you'll recognize it when it shows up. In the rise of Superman itself, I, you know, we talk about action adventure sport athletes, but I broaden it out and show how this applies in all domains of society. So obviously, read the book if you want the full picture. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. I think this interview is just full, jam-packed full of insights into the biochemistry, the neurobiology that really gives us capacity then to make better decisions, particularly if you're in sales or if you're an athlete or a coder or involved in, in game development or anything where you notice you have a peak state and then you hit a low, you know you can, you, you're, you've got your biochemistries working against you and it's time to look after that side of it. So I think this conversation really gives you a lot of tools to be able to manage yourself better going forward. My name is Donna Jones, and this is the Insight to Action podcast. My work is very much around decision-making, making those core decisions from a place of awareness, from a place of consciousness around complexity and where you are. My website's insighttoaction.com. I've written Decision Making for Dummies. I blog monthly for the Huffington Post, Great Workplace Cultures. And I have a chapter coming up on the new purpose of business in Irvin Laszlo's next book called The Intelligence of the Cosmos that'll be released in October 2017. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a great weekend.